Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for and the causes of mental illness. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma of having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it, and trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues. Well, welcome back to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on February 17, 2016, and hope that you've been doing well lately. Hope you had an enjoyable Valentine's Day since we last got together. First up on tonight's podcast, I often get asked, well, is there anything else that I can do besides take medication to treat my depression? And I say, yes, of course. Uh, There's counseling, there's psychotherapy, and uh, all right, people know about that, understand that. Uh, Often it's not their going if their insurance coverage is good enough for it or if they can otherwise afford it. Uh, But still, people want to know what else there is. And we've often talked about the benefits of exercise to help with depression. There's, by this time, reams and reams of medical research documenting the benefits of exercise in helping with depression. But now here's uh, another study in a growing number of uh, research studies documenting the benefits of meditation. Meditation really has come on strong in recent years, moving from uh, some sort of fringe new age type thing to something very much mainstream. And what we're going to be talking about now is the latest uh, research study about the benefits of meditation uh, in a scholarly peer-reviewed journal uh, done at an academic research center. This is the real deal. Uh, Meditation is now in the realm of real science, uh, not fringe remedies or junk science. Uh, So scientists say that learning new cognitive skills can help reduce overwhelming negative thoughts and thus help with depression, especially uh, meditation and aerobic exercise in particular, done together. And this study was done at uh, Rutgers University. It was published in the journal Translational Psychiatry this month. And it found that this mind-body combination of exercise and meditation done uh, only twice a week for only two months That's really not much to get a significant benefit. Uh, Most people think to really be in good physical condition, you need to work out five times a week or more. Uh, But 
to help with depression, it only takes twice a week along with meditation, um, and you can see benefits in as quickly as a month, that's really not that hard. Well, the findings saw such a meaningful improvement in both clinically depressed and non-depressed students. And the authors feel it's the first time that both of these two behavioral therapies have been looked at together for dealing with depression. They discovered that a combination of mental and physical training enabled students with major depressive disorder not to let problems or negative thoughts overwhelm them. Scientists have known for a while that both of these activities alone can help with depression, that is meditation and exercise. But this study suggests that when they're done together, there is a striking improvement in depressive symptoms along with increases in synchronized brain activity. The men and women in the Rutgers study who completed the eight-week program, 22 who were suffering with depression and 30 mentally healthy students, reported fewer depressive symptoms and said they did not spend as much time worrying about negative situations taking place in their lives as they did before the study began. The group also provided this training, this mental and physical training, to young mothers who had been homeless but were living at a residential treatment facility when they began the study. The women involved in the research exhibited severe depressive symptoms and elevated anxiety at the beginning, but by the end of the eight weeks, they too reported that their depression and anxiety had eased, they felt more motivated, and they were able to focus more positively on their lives. Depression, which is a debilitating disorder that affects nearly one in five Americans sometime in their life often occurs in adolescence or young adulthood. Until recently, the most common treatment for depression has been psychotropic medications that influence brain chemicals and regulate emotions and thought patterns, along with talk therapy that can work but takes considerable time and commitment on the part of the patient. And as I said before, if their insurance coverage isn't too great, considerable financial commitment as well. Rutgers researchers say those who participated in the study began with 30 minutes of focused attention meditation, followed by 30 minutes of aerobic exercise. They were told that if their thoughts drifted to the past or to the future, they should refocus on their breathing enabling those with depression to accept moment-to-moment -moment changes in attention. Those of you who already know something about meditation techniques will recognize that advice to uh, focus on their breathing and stay in the moment as part of the practice of mindfulness meditation. The studies uh, showed that the production of new brain cells in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. This is a portion of the brain in the temporal lobe known to be necessary for some types of new learning uh, <clears throat> that you have 
production of new brain cells in this area, a process called neurogenesis. But even though that can't be necessarily monitored in humans, scientists have shown in animal models that aerobic exercise will increase the number of new brain cells, and effortful learning keeps a significant number of those cells alive. That's right. So we now know one of the benefits of exercise is it increases the circulation of blood everywhere in the body, of course, right? Well, it does so in the brain as well. And the consequence of that increased blood circulation in the brain is that it gets the production and distribution going of specific proteins which promote the production of new brain cells. And this helps promote learning and memory. The idea for this intervention came from laboratory studies with the main goal of helping individuals acquire new skills so that they can learn to recover from stressful life events. By learning to focus their attention and to exercise, people who are fighting depression can acquire new cognitive skills that can help them process information and reduce the overwhelming recollection of memories from the past. And this tendency to ruminate on negative thoughts from the past is a classic textbook symptom of depression. These therapies can be practiced over a lifetime, and they will be effective in improving mental and cognitive health. And not only that, but this uh, intervention of meditation and exercise, particularly aerobic exercise, can be practiced by anyone at any time and at no cost. Well, <clears throat> again, more and more evidence that meditation, along with exercise, is moving into the realm of real hard science when it comes to the treatment of depression. Well, this next article I found caught my eye because many people at their workplace have trouble paying attention to just one task. They get distracted easily. They can't finish certain things. They're constantly interrupted by phone calls, emails, instant message of one type or another, uh, a colleague or coworker popping in, uh, their boss asking them for something. And in fact, it's become so much more prevalent that people therefore conclude they must have ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because, well, I'm so easily distracted and I can't focus, I can't finish things. Uh, well, guess what? You might not be suffering from ADHD, but uh, according to one author that this article quotes, you're instead suffering attention residue. And that's what's ruining your concentration. So I bring to you this article to introduce the concept of attention residue, and hopefully some of you who consider yourself to be easily distracted and to have trouble finishing things at work will find this interesting and helpful. So the article starts with this scenario. You've got a presentation at 2 p.m., 
but there are also a few emails you have to get to before the end of the week, and you've also really got to start prepping for a Monday meeting. But it's almost lunch, and, well, you can eat at your desk, read up on whatever new thing Donald Trump said, and still bust out a few memos, right? Wrong, argues Georgetown University computer science professor Cal Newport's new book called Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. And I think what we'll do is we'll pause for our commercial break here, and then when we get back, we'll get into what the book is about and give you some of his tips for avoiding attention residue and being more focused at work. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this break. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. And we're talking about <clears throat> attention residue, which is ruining your concentration at work. This is a concept introduced by Cal Newport, author of Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. Newport is a computer science professor at Georgetown University. In the book, excerpted recently on Wharton's website, Newport attempts to understand how workers can rise above their infomania. His trick? Deep work to conquer attention residue. Which means what? Well, he explains it using a 2009 paper titled, Why Is It So Hard to Do My Work? That was from Sophie Leroy, a business school professor at University of Minnesota. She studied a modern daily workplace conundrum. 
switching between tasks and getting things done. In two experiments, Leroy finds that people are less productive when they are constantly moving from one task to another instead of focusing on one thing at a time. Doesn't sound like too startling a revelation, does it? Sort of makes intuitive sense, doesn't it? Well, anyway, as Leroy's abstract details, and I'll quote, people need to stop thinking about one task in order to fully transition their attention and perform well on another. Yet, results indicate it is difficult for people to transition their attention away from an unfinished task, and their subsequent task performance suffers. Leroy calls this carryover from one task to another attention residue, where you're still thinking of a previous task as you start another one. Even if you finish your task completely, you still have some attention residue swirling around in your head as you embark on your next task, meaning that bullet point on your to-do list doesn't start off on the right foot. In other words, as much as multitasking gets nods for being an asset in today's time-crunched world, it's not really a good thing when it comes to your productivity, and it's actually a time waster. Here's what Newport calls deep work comes in. He suggests focusing on a single intense task for a long period of time to reach peak productivity. You don't get attention residue issues, which means your output is stronger, cleaner, and just plain better from a lack of distractions. So if you've got 10 emails to write, block off some time to just focus on those emails. If you've got a presentation due tomorrow, put put your away message on, sequester yourself, and focus on banging out that presentation. Most important, don't stop or begin something else until you're completely done. Well, you know, that struck me as just very good, reasonable, common sense advice. Um, And again, it just makes intuitive sense that you're going to be better able to attend to something and complete it successfully if you focus on that uh, by itself until you finish it than if you try to work on several things simultaneously. So, of course, we would all be more productive if we did that diligently. I think the one way that this doesn't work is many people, unfortunately, are in a work environment where they're subjected to a lot of external interruptions. It's one thing if someone is just left to their own devices and they can pick and choose what tasks they have to work on and when to start them and how long to spend on them for themselves. Uh, In that situation, of course, uh, the concept of deep work and avoiding attention residue works just fine. But uh, you can well appreciate if someone is in a work environment where they're constantly interrupted by coworkers or colleagues or their boss, uh, then it's a lot harder to do that. 
<clears throat> someone comes to you and says, hey, this went wrong. I need you to help fix it right now or such and such isn't going to happen and so and so is going to get angry. Well, then you may have no choice but to put down what you were doing, uh, interrupt it, um, get back to it later, and so on. Uh, but, again, where it's possible, uh, I do think it's so much better to focus on one thing at a time, finish it, then get to your other things, thus avoiding attention residue, which will make it more difficult to focus on uh, whatever else it is you're doing because you're still thinking about what you were working on before. All right. hope that helps those of you who have suffered that problem. And now this next item is called brain volume changes after cognitive behavioral therapy. Now the reason this article caught my eye and I decided I wanted to uh, discuss it with you is biological changes in the brain observed as an effect of talk therapy. Granted, cognitive behavioral therapy is a very specific type of talk therapy, but it's talk therapy. It's not medication. It's not some sort of physical intervention. The idea that you can see and document changes in the volume of certain brain structures as a result of any type of psychotherapy, even a highly specialized one like cognitive behavioral therapy, I think is remarkable and <clears throat> reminds us all that mental illness is a real physical entity and that whether you're talking about psychotherapy or medication, you're helping to bring about further physical changes in the brain to relieve the problem the person uh, was getting help for. Uh, let's get into the details of the article and illustrate the point. After just nine weeks of Internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy, no less, not even person-to-person -person therapy, but over the Internet, the brain of patients suffering from social anxiety disorder changes in volume. Anxiety is reduced and parts of the patient's brains decrease in both volume and activity. This study could help develop more effective therapies for one of the most common problems in mental health. Now, in case you didn't realize it, social anxiety disorder um, is a potentially very serious mental health problem. No, it is not just pathological shyness. Um, while it is true that people with social anxiety disorder tend to be extremely introverted, uh, the point of why the disorder is so disabling is that people are preoccupied uh, with the tremendous fear that they will be scrutinized or judged in a negative way by others in social situations and are gripped by the fear that they will say or do something embarrassing in social situations with the result that they avoid being around people and in the most extreme cases, and I admit this is the, the worst of the most extreme, someone with this disorder is completely homebound and they are so 
paralyzed by this fear and anxiety, they cannot bear to leave their home. Um, <clears throat> some years ago, uh, some naysayers criticized organized psychiatry, claiming that uh, the whole concept of social anxiety disorder was simply doctors medicalizing uh, shyness, a, a benign personality trait for the sake of being able to make money by uh, treating people with therapy and especially medication. I assure you nothing is further from the truth. Uh, people who suffer from this have a very seriously degraded quality of life. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy is an excellent form of treatment for all different types of anxiety disorders, especially social anxiety disorder. Now, uh, in the introduction I've given you to this study, it mentions that parts of the brain decreased in volume. Now, that sounds like a bad thing, right? Wow, we don't want less brain tissue. We want more, don't we? Not necessarily. Um, in a given disorder, uh, an area of the brain might be pathologically enlarged. And with treatment, it might, therefore, decrease back to a normal size. All right, let's go through the rest of the article. Uh, we've known for many years that the brain is remarkably adaptable. For instance, previous studies have shown that things like juggling and playing video games affect brain volume uh, <clears throat> because you're using skills and you're using uh, visual spatial uh, parts of the brain. But many questions about how the brain adapts remain unanswered. A group of researchers has studied how Internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy affects brain volume and activity. The researchers focused on patients with social anxiety disorder, which really is one of the most common mental health problems. Before and after treatment, the brains of patients were examined with MRI or magnetic resonance imaging scans. The researchers found that in patients with social anxiety disorder, brain volume and activity in the amygdala decreases as a result of the internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy. And the results are presented in Translational Psychiatry, the same journal that had the article about exercise and meditation and depression that we talked about earlier. The greater the improvement they saw in the patients, the smaller the size of the amygdala. The study also suggests that this reduction in volume drives the reduction in brain activity. Now, um, we'll take our next commercial break here. When we come back, we'll further examine the results of this study. Uh, I'll explain what is this structure called the amygdala, how it relates to uh, anxiety in general, including social anxiety, and we'll have more mental health-related news beyond that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and Medical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the podcast with all the latest mental health-related news from your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking about how a study of Internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy for sufferers of social anxiety disorder was able to document changes in brain volume that coincided with improvement in symptoms and response to treatment. The study comprised 26 individuals treated over the internet for nine weeks, making it quite a small study. However, it is unique in that it investigates multiple factors at the same time. Post-treatment changes in both brain volume and brain activity. Although they didn't look at that many patients, This work provides some important knowledge, especially for all the sufferers. Several studies have reported that certain areas of the brain differ between patients with and without anxiety disorders. They've shown that the patients can improve in nine weeks and that this leads to structural differences in their brains. The study is a first step in a larger project. Ultimately, the aim is to better understand the psychological and biological effects of treatment in order to develop more effective therapies. The research team is now moving forward with studies on more patients. One study aims to identify the point during treatment where the change in the brain occurs. Well, as promised, let me explain what the amygdala is and why changes in the size of this structure 
would be important and relevant in a study of treatment of an anxiety disorder uh, with any uh, modality, including with internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy. For lack of a better way of putting it, the amygdala, sort of an almond-sized and shaped structure deep in the middle of the brain, is the fear center of the brain, if you will. Um, it assigns uh, emotional values to fearful stimuli, and it makes sense that this structure would be overactive and even increased in volume in patients who suffer quite a bit from anxiety, especially social anxiety. And therefore, I find it fascinating that you could document that when patients improve, that this structure would decrease back to a more normal size. And furthermore, that you accomplish this without administering any physical treatment per se. No medication, no ECT or other uh, magnetic or electrical device to administer treatment, just cognitive behavioral therapy, a type of psychotherapy. And again, at that, over the Internet, not even face-to-face -face with a therapist in the room. Um, you know, so I can't overstate this enough. It demonstrates clearly the relationship between structures in the brain and uh, mental health problems, and therefore also very, very elegantly demonstrates how uh, a treatment can uh, ameliorate these symptoms uh, and how uh, the abnormal structural aspects um, in the brain recover with treatment. There you have it. All right, well... <clears throat> Another triumph for cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, next up, let's look at, uh, I, I was, well, see, yeah, ironically, I was just decrying the uh, treatment modalities with uh, electricity and magnetism, but uh, this next article touts a new treatment using electricity for a different mental health problem, a different anxiety disorder. It's an electric patch which apparently holds promise for treating post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which is also classified as an anxiety disorder. So let's take a look at this and see how, how promising it might be. Uh, the research team plans to test this approach with post-September 11 veterans to heal the invisible wounds of war, that the, being the post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. An average of 30 years had passed since the traumatic events that had left them depressed, anxious, irritable, hypervigilant, and unable to sleep, and prone to nightmares. Uh, but for the 12 people who were involved in a UCLA-led study, survivors of rape, car accidents, domestic abuse, and other traumas, an unobtrusive patch on the forehead provided considerable relief from post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. I'm trying to imagine how you could call a patch on your forehead unobtrusive. Well, I guess if it helps, that's the main thing. 
in any case, these are patients, uh, again, a very small number, but still, uh, their illness had almost become a way of life insofar it was that disabling. Uh, yet they were coming in and saying after this treatment, for the first time in years, I slept through the night or my nightmares are gone. The effect was extraordinarily powerful. Nightmares are one of the core symptoms of PTSD. Um, <clears throat> people suffer from night frequent nightmares, um, either directly about the trauma that they suffered um, or some other uh, quite disturbing content. Uh, for example, someone who is a victim of rape or an assault will have nightmares about being attacked and uh, uh, trying to fend off their attacker in vain. This research uh, has been presented at scholarly conferences, and it was published in the journal Neuromodulation Technology at the Neural Interface. Uh, that's a highly specialized esoteric journal, of course. But nonetheless, the research revealed the first evidence that trigeminal nerve stimulation holds promise for treating chronic PTSD. Now, the trigeminal nerve is one of the cranial nerves because uh, it comes off the brain stem and supplies innervation to uh, the face and the head. And the trigeminal nerve, uh, the fifth cranial nerve, uh, supplies much of the innervation to the face. Uh, you may have heard of trigeminal neuralgia, right? This is a disorder... Uh, that can be exquisitely painful. It's a disorder of the trigeminal nerve that causes terrible facial pain. So in any case, the patch on the forehead is providing the electrical stimulation to the trigeminal nerve. And this is how uh, the researchers hope to treat the anxiety related to PTSD. Most patients with PTSD do get some benefit from existing treatments, but the great majority still have symptoms and suffer for years from those symptoms. This could be a breakthrough for patients who have not been helped adequately by existing treatments. Based on the study, which was conducted primarily with civilian volunteers, the scientists are recruiting military veterans who are at even greater risk for PTSD for the next phase of their research. The trigeminal nerve stimulation is a new form of what's called neuromodulation, a class of treatment in which external energy sources are used to make subtle adjustments to the brain's electrical wiring, sometimes with devices that are implanted in the body, but increasingly with external devices. The approach is gaining popularity for treating drug-resistant neurological and psychiatric disorders. An example of what they're talking about with a device that's implanted in the body is vagal nerve stimulators, or VNS. This is a pacemaker-like device that is implanted um, in the uh, upper chest, and it has electrical leads which are attached to the vagus nerve and electrical stimulation 
is applied to the vagus nerve, which then travels back uh, upward to the brain. And <clears throat> this has uh, originally been used to treat uh, treatment-resistant and medication-resistant seizure disorders, but was also developed later on to treat uh, treatment-resistant and medication-resistant depression. Trigeminal nerve stimulation harnesses current from a 9-volt battery to power a patch that is placed on the user's forehead. While the person sleeps, the patch sends a low-level current to cranial nerves that run through the forehead, sending signals to parts of the brain that help regulate mood, behavior, and cognition, including the amygdala, which we talked about before. Again, that's the anxiety or the fear center of the brain, right? So it would also be relevant to PTSD, not just social anxiety like we talked about before. And another area called the medial prefrontal cortex, as well as the autonomic nervous system, which regulates things like heart rate and respiratory rate, things that are certainly affected by anxiety, right? When you're anxious, your heart rate and breathing rate go up. Prior research has shown abnormal activities in those areas of the brains of PTSD sufferers. The chance to have an impact on debilitating diseases with this elegant and simple technology is very satisfying. PTSD affects approximately 3.5% of the United States population, but a much higher proportion of military veterans. An estimated 17% of active military personnel experience, experience symptoms and some 30% of veterans returning from service in Iraq and Afghanistan have had symptoms. Sufferers often have difficulty working with others, raising children, and maintaining healthy relationships. Many try to avoid situations that could trigger flashbacks, which makes them reluctant to socialize or to venture from their homes, leaving them isolated. And uh, PTSD is a very, very serious mental health problem, and uh, a lot of the patients don't respond to the treatments that we have. So if this pans out, it would be quite helpful. We'll take another commercial break here. We'll finish our discussion of this study and more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George. 
Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health news. And we're getting back to our discussion about a new technique for treating PTSD. It's being studied in civilian trauma victims at uh, UCLA, and they hope to eventually use this in uh, combat veterans. So people with PTSD are six times more likely than their healthy counterparts to commit suicide, and they have an increased risk for marital difficulties and of dropping out of school. So this is an extremely important problem, and we do need better treatments. For this recently completed study, the researchers recruited people with chronic or long-standing PTSD and severe depression who were already being treated with psychotherapy, medication, or both. While continuing their conventional treatment, the volunteers wore this patch while they slept for eight hours a night. Before and after the eight-week study, the study subjects completed questionnaires about the severity of their symptoms and the extent to which the disorders affected their work, parenting, and socializing. The severity of participants' PTSD symptoms dropped by an average of more than 30%, and the severity of their depression dropped by an average of more than 50%. Uh, I can tell you that in studies of medications to treat psychiatric disorders, if you see reduction in symptoms of as much as 30%, uh, and, and you're the person doing the research, you're falling all over yourself that you had such a smashing success. So 50% greater reduction in symptoms is just unbelievable. In fact, for one quarter of the study subjects, PTSD, 
these symptoms went into remission. In addition, study subjects generally said they felt more able to participate in their daily activities. Uh, so apparently this patch really helped these people get back to their normal lives, which is what it's all about. Now, um, they're working with the Veterans Administration Greater Los Angeles Healthcare System to recruit 74 veterans who have served in the military since September the 11th for the study's next phase. And in that, half of them will receive real treatment and half of them will be given a fake uh, trigeminal nerve stimulation patch in much the same way that you would compare a placebo pill to a psychiatric drug trial. At the end of that study, subjects who are using the fake patch will have the option of undergoing treatment with an actual trigeminal nerve stimulation system. And this treatment has been shown to be effective already in treating other disorders such as drug-resistant epilepsy and treatment-resistant depression. Remember we talked before about how the vagal nerve stimulator, which is something that's not a patch, but that has to be implanted in your chest and electrical leads wrapped around your vagus nerve, that was also discovered to help depression after initially being used on people with drug-resistant epilepsy. PTSD is one of the invisible wounds of war. The scars are inside, but they can be just as debilitating as visible scars. So it's a contribution that could improve the lives of so many brave and courageous people who have made sacrifices for the good of our country. And I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. However, uh, while this is encouraging, we're talking only a dozen people, all right? Um, and <clears throat> it's great that they felt better. But before we say this trigeminal nerve stimulation technique is the real thing, it has to be tried at different centers by different researchers and with much, much larger groups of patients. Uh, comparing it to a placebo by just using a fake patch, uh, in other words, one that does not, uh, stimulate the trigeminal nerve, but just stays on the person's forehead, uh, that will go a long way to determining whether this is the real deal or not. But if it were, what a tremendous breakthrough that would be. Next up on Psychiatry Today, let's take another look at the interface between physical disease and Diseases like anxiety and depression, which, don't get me wrong, they're very much physical. Uh, as regular listeners to this podcast know, I decry the distinction between physical and so-called mental. It's all physical when you get right down to it. However, <clears throat> I guess what I'm specifically talking about is a study that found that kids who have allergies uh, at an early age are more likely than others to have problems with anxiety and depression. As the number of allergies increase, so do internalizing behavior scores. And internalizing behaviors include disorders like anxiety or depression, 
that develop when people basically keep their problems to themselves or internalize them. The surprising finding for researchers was that allergic rhinitis, or so-called hay fever or seasonal allergies, has the strongest association with abnormal anxiety, depression, and internalizing scores compared to other allergic diseases. Rhinitis includes the hay fever symptoms of runny nose, sneezing, and itchy, watery eyes. The researchers studied 546 children who had skin tests and exams at age 1, 2, 3, 4, and 7, and whose parents completed behavioral assessments at age 7. They looked for signs of sneezing and itchy eyes, wheezing, or skin inflammation related to allergies. Parents answered 160 questions about their child's behaviors and emotions, including how often they seemed worried, nervous, fearful, or sad. Kids who had allergic sneezing and itchy or watery eyes or persistent wheezing at age four tended to have higher depressive or anxiety scores than others at age seven. Anxiety and depression scores increased as the number of allergies increased. Now, the study can't prove causation. It only describes a significant association between these disorders. However, there are hypotheses on why these diseases are associated. Children with allergic diseases may be at increased risk for abnormal internalizing scores due to an underlying biological mechanism of course, or because they modify their behavior in response to the allergies. No, I don't buy that. Like other chronic diseases, allergic diseases may trigger maladaptive behaviors or emotions. Not buying that either. But some prior studies support a biological mechanism that involves allergy antibodies triggering production of other substances that affect parts of the brain that control emotions. Of course that's what it is. Earlier studies have found links between allergies and anxiety disorders, such as panic attacks or generalized anxiety disorders. The new study took race, gender, and other factors into account, so the strong association between allergic disease and internalizing disorder they found is definitely present. The severity of mental health symptoms varied in this study. Some children had anxiety and depression that needed treatment, while others were at risk and required monitoring. The study calls for better screening by pediatricians, allergists, and parents of children with allergic disease. Allergic children with clinical anxiety or depressive symptoms are receiving no care for these conditions in much of their cases. Now, <clears throat> we also don't know yet uh, how treatment for allergic diseases may affect or change the risk for internalizing disorders, and researchers hope to study that in the future. Uh, this research was published online in the journal Pediatrics back at the end of December the 29th. 
Now, what this article about the study doesn't mention, but which appears to be quite obvious to me, is the biological mechanism whereby allergic rhinitis symptoms relate to symptoms like anxiety and depression. When you have an allergic reaction to anything, and that includes things that you're allergic to in the environment, uh, pollens and so on that trigger allergic rhinitis symptoms or seasonal allergies or hay fever. You have inflammatory cells that release inflammatory proteins. Okay, um, the uh, mast cells, um, certain immunoglobulins are increased in circulation when you're having uh, allergy symptoms. In short, the link is inflammation. Our old nemesis, uh, which is found to be behind uh, many, if not most, negative psychiatric states, negative uh, mental, emotional states, uh, this increase in circulation in the body of inflammatory proteins that causes the you know, watery, itchy eyes, the runny nose, and so on, uh, also can have a negative impact on the parts of the brain that regulate mood. So there's definitely a biological mechanism. Um, sorry, but I'm not buying it when the researchers talk about, well, because of the allergy symptoms, it changes behavior and this and that and the other thing. No, um, I don't agree. Um, <clears throat> you know, This is definitely a biologically based change. And just look at the fact that suicide rates peak in the spring. Uh, that is not a coincidence, folks, okay? When the pollen counts start to rise, that's when suicide rates peak. Uh, it's one of the just um, myths uh, that this happens around the end of the year, the winter, the holidays, what have you. That is not true at all. If you're uh, going to look for when suicide rates peak, it's in the spring. It's because of the allergy symptoms. So the common pathway here is inflammation. Um, <clears throat> I definitely do think that treating and preventing allergy symptoms would prevent some of this problem with anxiety and depression in kids who suffer from them. Well, we're going to wrap that up for tonight. Um, hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.